Welcome back to Martins and More. My name's Mari Rutsch. And I'm Spoon Phillips. And we have some really cool things to talk about today. What's going on, Spoon? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been playing a lot of guitar uh, again for the first time in a while. Uh, you know, like really uh, going at it and, um, and realized just how rusty I was, especially when it comes to the, my fingerstyle pieces that I composed. How about you? I didn't want to say anything, but uh, yeah, I've uh, I've always been a fan of fingerstyle guitar, and it's one of those things where I listen to so many radio stations on Pandora. Uh, when I say radio stations, of course, I mean the ones I am in charge of. I don't listen to the radio anymore, but we certainly like to get a, a pretty good mix of music around here. If I go upstairs, it's Grateful Dead uh, 25 hours a day, eight days a week. <laughs> but when I come down into the studio and I'm not on the phones, I do like to listen to a lot of music. And maybe today is a good day to talk about that kind of music, which does not have vocals. Would you call that finger style? Well, I call it instrumental music. And of course, uh, some of my favorite Grateful Dead is their instrumental uh, jam session. So there's a shout out to Brother Andrew out there in uh, Pennsylvania, who's, <laughs> if you don't know, is the reason Mari has to listen to Grateful Dead all day long. But uh, <laughs> I'll read into that comment the way I want to, which means you don't like the Grateful Dead when they sing. Uh, no, that's not true at all. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, what really got me into them as a, as a kid, in addition to their uh, their some of their acoustic stuff, like on uh, Working Man's Dead, was their uh, extended you know freeform jazz stuff. But anyway, yeah. So instrumental music, um, I you know, so I think today we we're gonna we've decided we're gonna discuss uh, some of our favorite. Fingerstyle albums, like solo acoustic guitar, fingerstyle albums, they don't necessarily have to be all instrumental. Uh, fingerstyle meaning, of course, finger picking, but there's a difference between, in some people's minds, finger picking means you're finger picking, like Travis picking that was based on the style that Merle Travis had uh, pioneered. That's usually associated with singing, like Paul Simon, people like that, as opposed to fingerstyle, where you're playing melody and bass parts with the hand and often without any vocals involved at all. Very good point. I appreciate that distinction. And if you're no stranger to the podcast, you have heard recently, we've been getting into some really fun top 10 lists. Today's not going to be a top 10. We're not going to rate anybody. If we're going to mention somebody at the early part of the show, it doesn't mean they're going to be better than people at the end of the show. We're just going to sit here and spend a little bit of time telling you some of our favorite fingerstyle CDs. And Spoon, I'm going to be a gentleman and let you go first. Well, I'm, I'm going to defer to the second half um, because uh, I have a question for you is getting you totally off guard. Do you remember any, uh, could be vocals or not, early track on an album that was uh, very impressive to you because of the finger picking or finger style guitar? Anything strike you as being, you know, very early influential on, I like that, I want to listen to more music like that. Ooh, uh, off guard I am. Let me think about that for a second. A really inspirational, instrumental piece that begins an album or begins a song that just grabbed me and didn't let go? No, just, just a song. Like, I'll, I'll go first, but to give you time to think about it. When I was quite young, my brother used to borrow records, record albums from friends all the time. And he borrowed one that had a, an amazing guitar piece on it that sounded like two people playing um, and sounded really unlike anything I'd heard before. And it turned out to be 
Vox Beret, which is a very famous fingerstyle piece that a lot of people, you know, classical guitar piece that a lot of people learned, um, particularly back in that era. And it was from an early Leo Kotke album called Mudlark. And it really blew me away. And it's the only tune remotely like it on the record. It's one of his, Leo Kotke's records where he's, where he has like bass and drum accompaniment and is mainly singing and stuff like that. So it really blew me away and made me, you know, then I started to, you know, really hear that more. And then, then I realized that that was the sort of thing that Paul Simon was doing. Of course, he was famous for doing uh, that instrumental Angie that he didn't write, but he certainly helped popularize it. And, um, and then Stephen Stills, you know, people like that. That's where I really got hooked into, you know, finger pickers and finger style playing. Did that give you enough time to think of something? No, I was listening to what you were saying. I don't. I can't think and listen at the same time. But that's interesting. And, and and you saying that does really bring me back to what I could have said. Guinevere from David Crosby. Uh, and maybe mm. not even as much as listening to live versions or the recorded versions, but friends of ours at Martinfest. And I won't have to tell you too many times to remind you that our friend Mark from the West Coast... Uh, back when Martin Fest was in full gear, maybe maybe six, seven years ago, when it seemed like year after year, nobody missed that. He would often bring his D45 out, and it's just the unusual nature of the tuning, and it, it's such a it's, a, it's a combination of the song is so old and, and so great, and then when you see somebody do it in the tuning it belongs in, it was probably that song is a really good answer to your off-the-cuff question. I only wish we had weeks and weeks between episodes where you could tell me what you're going to ask me. I could have been a little <laughs> bit more prepared. But no, that's a great answer. I could have uh, cited that as well as, as something that, as uh, you know, when I was younger that really impressed me. And uh, this is Martin's and more after all. So I'd like to point out for those people who don't know that Marcus was such a David Crosby fan and is such a David Crosby fan that he actually bought a 1968 slash 69 D45 when they first brought them out and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young all bought one. These, this is, we're talking about the straight braced European spruce top Brazilian rosewood D45 that he would let everybody play. He wouldn't bring it every year. He also had a Stephen Stills uh, signature model. He would bring that sometimes. But yeah, to listen to him play Guinevere on that was always always a great treat. And my uh, just butchering, trying to sing the harmony on it. But uh, with something you always <laughs> did very well. Um, so, yeah, so I'll just I'll jump. Uh, I'll just step, take one more step forward toward Leo Kotke, because then I went out and bought uh, not even knowing what it was. I just saw there's a Leo Kotke album and I remembered that other album. And it's the album My Feet Are Smiling, which was his was a, at least the first live album that I ever heard. And just spectacular finger style playing on 12 string and six string. And he does like one, you know, vocal song on it, uh, that old song Louise that, you know, he covered regularly and played slide on. But just, just blew me away. And a particular song called Stealing, that he called it Stealing because it was a bastardization of the famous finger pickers picking song, Doc's Guitar, um, that was. You know, referring to Doc Watson, and but he did it. You know, Leo Kotke originally came up with the tune because he wanted to write a harmony part for it. He wanted to come up with a harmony for that tune, and then it turned into this song called "Stealing." And if people know both songs, you can certainly easily recognize the, the influence. But anyway, that's a, a marvelous tune that I 
keeps thinking someday I'm going to master, but but um, haven't. So um, I'm going to spring another one on you. When did you start finger picking? Well, probably 1987, 88, maybe. I want to say it was definitely before 1990, but right around 84, 85, I started playing electric guitar, and it was a little while until I got into acoustic, but it's safe to say as soon as I did gravitate towards acoustic, it was acoustic finger style that I liked best. I, I basically graduated from uh, strumming and playing guitar on, on electric guitar. As soon as I found what I liked about the acoustic, it was the finger style nature of it, I think, that I gravitated to first. Not that I could do it very quickly, properly, but right around the same time as I discovered acoustic guitar, that's why I wanted one. It wasn't a love for strumming or flat picking or bluegrass. It was acoustic stuff. And you'd mentioned Paul Simon a few minutes ago. On a previous podcast, I mentioned the concert in Central Park was extremely influential to me. So anything Simon and Garfunkel were doing, uh, that was probably, what was that concert, 81, 82? That um, sounds right in there. Yep. You know, I've, that, his, and, and Martins and more. I'm going to, you talked about the Martins, I'll talk about the more. Uh, that was an ovation <laughs> guitar, at least in that concert. So I, ironically, it, uh, it was a while before I loved Martin guitars, I just loved acoustic guitars and acoustic finger picking. And at the very, very onset, ironically, it was uh, ovation guitars that I was at least looking at, not necessarily recognizing my love for Martins exactly at that time. But Paul Simon stuff, uh, as soon as I latched onto that, I, I went back and I probably didn't buy everything he had in order, but I certainly discovered Simon de Garfunkel from that concert and quickly went back and found all I could with uh, maybe not the earliest, earliest, folkiest stuff that they did, but I'm a huge fan of... All the all the stuff that was on the Bridge Over Troubled Water era, and I've I could babble, and you could stop me after an hour, I'd still be talking about Paul Simon, but he's so influential, and James Taylor is another one, but Paul Simon's probably the guy. Yeah, and he makes everything seem so effortless, and and you know just like you know like it's water just flowing downstream. So yeah, so tell me about uh, one of your favorite uh, finger style albums. Well. I can't start this program without really going to the heart of it. I really do think it's fair to say Howard Emerson's Crossing Crystal Lake is at least at the forefront in my mind. It's not necessarily, like we said, we're not going to rate this list, but I really have to talk about that CD. And as we go through this conversation, it's going to be funny. I think many of the things I'm really drawn to happened right around 2004. So 2004, for whatever silly reason, was a really watershed year for me and the music that I like that I'm calling finger style. But if you can go and find Crossing Crystal Lake from Howard Emerson, I've the way I would describe Howard's technique and Howard's playing, it's so rhythmic and it's so, he's like a metronome. And I know there's a lot of people we're going to talk about on these lists and maybe you and I would agree. Some players have a lot of flash and almost at the cost of it's not necessarily super perfect timing, but there's a rhythmic quality to Howard Emerson. I don't know if he would agree with this or if he would like me saying it, but I suspect he's actually more interested in driving the beat and the syncopation and keeping things in time as much as any other quality of his music. You know, the, the phrasing, the, the melody and the counter bass. He's doing everything that you want to hear on a fingerstyle album, but for some reason... And I don't know why, but he his stuff resonates with me so much. It's just like a clock. And I, I don't know if you do this when you're traveling, but when you're going back and forth in Pennsylvania, oftentimes you'll go through some tunnels. And it's that old trick where the radio is playing or, like I said earlier, Pandora. And the signal goes away for a minute because you can't, you know, get the antenna. And as you're humming along with the song, 
when the, the signal goes away and it comes back about a minute later, you're clearly not still on the beat. You know, you've lost it. I don't, I bet Howard Emerson has never lost a beat playing guitar in his lifetime. <laughs> it just feels like he has such an internal drummer with him. And I, when I say that, I don't mean he's lacking in any respect when it comes to the other parts of what builds a really good finger style uh, composition, but his rhythm, it just, it knocks me over. I've, of course, he has more CDs than that, and I've I've got you know a couple of them in my collection. But that CD itself probably means a lot to me, not just because I love the sound of it, but back in 2004, I was really lucky enough to have Howard Emerson come to Maury's Music for one of our anniversary parties. And before the show, he's sitting on our stage and he's he's noodling away at some of the. This is new music for him at the time because that CD was just coming out. He actually took some time to show me some of the chops, and I didn't really latch on to it like I, I should have, and I didn't put the time into it to say that I could play it for you now. But hearing that album and hearing Howard Emerson play it for me and having Howard try to teach me, uh, that's one of my big ones, Crossing Crystal Lake from Howard Emerson. For a lot of us, uh, it's a seminal album. And I think because he... Um, now, I first met Howie when he was... He was actually working in the acoustic guitar room at Sam Ash on 48th Street. But a lot of people who are not familiar with Howard Emerson, he lives out on, on Long Island. Uh, you can go to howardemerson.com. He was in Billy Joel's original band and toured with Billy Joel. He does the classical guitar on like early Billy Joel recordings and stuff like that. And so he was a, tra he's a trained classical musician for all intents and purposes. So yes, you call it, you know, his tempo... His, his timing, he has the timing of a full-fledged chop house, uh, you know, uh, professional guitarist and a professional you know, musician, studio musician. Um, but I think the word that, that you will miss throughout all that is groove. It's Howie's groove. Yes. That is what it is all about. And he loves traditional uh, fingerstyle blues, and uh, he's a, a very depth slide player he's uh you know he does some uh he does you know he'll branch off into stuff that sounds more latin and things like that but i can't you know recommend his music enough and and i you know i saw him years later at the guitar show out on long island and by this time he had become a martin clinician and he was at the martin booth you know and and hanging out um you know it's first time i'd really seen him in a long time we got talking and martin had given him an om 18v and i owned an om 18v at that time and we got talking again got reacquainted um he had his wife had talked to him into starting to use uh, artificial fingernails the kind you get done in beauty parlors and so i started doing them too because that's what you do when you get older and your you know, your nails get thinner and thinner and i only recently uh saw him playing a video the other night where he's no longer doing that, and he's actually using some sort of unusual-looking finger picks on his first two fingers. But so I'm going to reach out to him about that. But anyway, yes, I have all of his CDs. Crossing Crystal Lake is the seminal album, but I would recommend people check out um, you know, any of them. Um, he used to also do video lessons. I don't know if he still does that. Uh, lately, and on Crossing Crystal Lake, one of the things I liked about it is he mentions what guitars he's playing. So on some guitars, he's playing a vintage uh, L00 Gibson. On some guitars, he's playing a 1954 0018, which is his main uh, Martin. But he really wanted the wider string, so that's when he switched to the, the um, 18V. These days, he plays uh, guitars built by his 
very longtime friend, John Monteleone. So he's got flat tops and arch tops. He plays arch tops. He's got an old Gibson L5. Uh, very cool guy. Howard Emerson, Howie, you know, Howie and I go back, but I haven't seen him in a long time because of the pandemic. And, uh, and you talked about my one quick Howard story before we move on from this is the very first Martin Fest, he was one of the musical guests. He was our musical guest. And he came and he did a set out at the park and had 98 to 100 degree weather. And he's sitting there playing and mesmerizing everybody. And these young guys were walking across the parking lot. And one of them started like, you know, clapping his hands, you know, like to the rhythm or whatever. And Howard just just said, you know, and they're laughing. And he, Howard just said, tempo, tempo, you know, and didn't, of course, didn't miss a beat. But uh, cause that, got, that other guy certainly did. But anyway, yeah, Howard Emerson, I can't, we can't uh, recommend Howie enough. Howie, if you ever hear of this, uh, I do love your uh, most re recent album. I really haven't talked to you about it, but we'll catch up. And when it comes to uh, players that are super good, but not that well known, only but in certain circles they are, I want to give a shout out to, uh, to Teja Gherkin. Acoustic guitar players will know him. He was uh, with Acoustic Guitar Magazine for years, did their video reviews for years. Uh, now he does his own thing, but his, uh, he's got uh, CDs out, but his original CD, I really enjoyed. Um, and I still, it's still in my playlist. I think a lot of these albums I'm mentioning, I like cherry pick tunes that I really like. And so a couple of his tunes, I have a couple of Larry Pattis tunes from his CDs that are in my oh. regular, regular rotation in, you know, on my phone. Uh, one of them called The Paths of Swananoa is quite beautiful. And then, of course, Al McMean, who I know you know. Oh, yeah. Al McMean's a great friend. And I probably know Al just a little bit longer than I know Howard Emerson. And this part of my story might sound exactly the same as my Howard Emerson crush. Uh, bear with me if it, if it sounds like I'm reading from a script. But I can say the same things about Al McMean. Probably one of his most influential albums to me is Dancing the Strings. But if I'm being honest, I probably found three of his CDs at the same time. Uh, another one's called Breakout. And this time of year, uh, I'm not sure if this podcast is going to air in time, but you must, simply must, find The Soul of Christmas from Elle McMean. That's exactly what you should be listening to all December long. Uh, my <laughs> sincere apologies if this airs in January, but still put it on because it's still great. But Elle McMean, another good friend, he's actually been to the store many, many times. Uh, going back 10 years ago, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for Elle to call me up every month. He'd either buy another guitar from us or he found a guitar and wanted to buy another pickup from us. But he'd make it uh, a pretty fun routine to drive up to the store, spend the afternoon, and I would install a K&K pickup for him pretty often. And it, it wouldn't be without him sitting on the couch and just playing the stuff he plays. And man, when I look back to the way things were in 2004, 2005, to just have a regular afternoon day at a music store would be broken up by somebody like him coming in and just pulling one of the dozens of Martins off the wall and just chatting like we are now, but in between talking, he, you would just hear this live music from somebody like him. And, and again, really, really rhythmic, uh, really understated. I mean, I know there, there are some people that might get on this list before it's over that could just go crazy insane and what they can do with an instrument. And I think Howard and Elle McMean can, but don't. And when I say that, I mean it as a compliment. They're kind of letting the things happen in music where it's the notes you don't play kind of thing. But Howard being the groove master, if we want to call him that. El McMean, 
I would categorize him a little bit more melody-driven. And some of the things he did that really knocked me over, uh, a lot of great original compositions for sure, but uh, stop me if you remember this, but you might recognize he did a really cool version of Tears of a Clown, killer version of uh, a Frankie Valley tune. I think it's, I forget the name of it now, but they're both on the same album. But some really neat Motown-driven things and, and melodies that you sort of associate uh, with anything but fingerstyle guitar. And uh, he was a big fan of, of the OM size instruments. I know he has a, a, a lot of different guitars now, as everybody else on this list probably does. But the L. McMean that I remember would have been playing something like an OM28V or uh, a lot of different Rosewoods. He might have had a Philly Folk Festival model at one time. But mm. uh, big on capoing in the second fret or the fourth fret. And um, maybe not as... as as rhythm heavy as, as Howard, but certainly uh, enough groove to go along with anything else. And his, his CD called Dancing the Strings, I think would be uh, the second one that I want to mention. And before we go further, I should take this time to say, whether you're listening in the car or watching on YouTube, we're going to do our best to put all these artists in the show notes. So if you like what we're saying, if we're going to name somebody who makes you, pops up your antenna and you want to go learn more about them, we're going to let point you towards all the good stuff uh, in the in the comments and in the, in the show notes on Apple Music. And also, we are very interested, particularly those on YouTube who can put uh, comments and hearing the fingerstyle artists that you like. Uh, we have not mentioned a lot of the more traditional uh, sort of country southern uh, finger pickers, though we may get to that if we have time. Uh, one thing I want to point out about L, where where Howie Emerson is very blues oriented, uh, L comes from the Celtic tradition and plays the uh, the Celtic C tuning, which is very similar to Dadgad, except that you drop the low E to C and you drop the A to G, and he basically plays that 100% of the time, uh, which gives his uh, his compositions really. A really interesting sound and gravitas to have that lower C note when you want it. And like Howie, they both cross-tune. Uh, Howie's real big on cross-tuning. That means like you're going to play, let's say you're going to tune your guitar to open G, um, but then you put the capo someplace so it's really an open B, but then he composes in F uh, sharp major or something like that. And, uh, and L, in addition to doing those cool Motown songs and his own compositions, he has uh, entire albums of like Irish fiddle tunes and, you know, the old Carolyn tunes and, and that kind of stuff. And he usually always has at least one or two old traditional, what really would have been a, uh, a Scottish or Irish or British, uh, you know, fiddle tune and that he has, or even a pipe tune that he has composed into uh, transposed for the guitar. So I like the breakout album a lot. His song he wrote for his wife, Song for Sheila, is just a, a real, uh, you know, like really gets my heartstrings and is really quite evocative and a really wonderful, like you talked about, it's, a, it's rather slow and, and has a lot of air in it or sustained notes and stuff. But, and then this, you know, relatively simple chorus, if you want to call it a chorus, it's not with vocals, but uh, just really lovely. And so good on them. I, I really enjoyed seeing him and Larry Pattis do a show together at a church in New Jersey years ago. And the review I wrote for the various uh, guitar forums and stuff in the old days might still be out there on the on the interwebs, as my friend Bill calls them. But um, 
So yeah, those are those are you know people that aren't that well known, and there's zillions of people who are not that well known. So we're definitely interested in hearing some of your favorite finger stylists, whether they're American or over in Europe or wherever. So please put them in the comments. Um, but to go to one of the biggies, I've got to make a shout out to Michael Hedges' record, Aerial Boundaries. A friend of mine that I'd gone to high school with when I was in college just gave me a cassette. And you know, I think it had like a Neil Young album on one side, like the most recent <laughs> Neil Young album, and then this Michael Hedges album. I was unfamiliar with him at the time and just really blew me away. Uh, a lot of people will remember the Wyndham Hill label and that had like pianist George Winston on it, but I'm pretty sure Michael Hedges was on Wyndham Hill. I might be getting it mixed up with another one of those indie labels that did solo instrumental music people. Uh, it was a long time ago, but boy, did that just wow me. And he he was actually like a, a huge Crosstails Nash and Young fan. And the story goes that he showed up at the famous place in Berkeley that has the famous open mic and auditioned and played like a Neil Young song and sang it. And the guy was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you can show up. And then he showed up and started doing, he's one of those pioneers of the slap, maybe not a pioneer, but masters of the slap technique on the neck and all that stuff. And, and he actually approached David Crosby and Graham Nash in a parking lot. Say, can I play something? Can I play something? Can I play something? And he did and just blew him away. And and so <laughs> David Crosby became an immediate Michael Hedges fan and and they, you know, were pals and and they both sing on uh, they sing My Country Tisavi on on an album that has Michael doing the guitar. Uh, really uh, but yeah, and poor Michael, he he died tragically uh, many years ago now in a car accident on uh, his car had gone off like a mountain road in Northern California and they didn't find him for some days or something like that. But it was very sad. It was a really uh, tragic loss to the uh, music world. So Michael Hedges, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, he influenced a zillion young guitar players that got into the body slapping and neck slapping and, and that kind of percussive techniques um, that are so popular that Martin came out with that special bridge plate sensor, you know, as part of their aura setup for people who like to do that kind of music. So it gives you some idea of how popular it is out there in the world. Can I take this quick opportunity to embarrass myself a little bit? Please. <laughs> I saw Crosby, Stills and Nash maybe in the mid nineties, early nineties, and Michael Hedges opened up and I had no idea who he was and I was bored. <laughs> I, I, I'm like so mad at my past self for feeling that way. I, I, you know, you go through life and then as you, you finally, you know, your musical tastes change, like, you know what? I think I saw that guy. And I, of course you, you see set lists on the internet now. And, and I don't know how many shows he actually, you know, went with them on tour, but I had the opportunity and I was there and I didn't enjoy it. And I was just, I was all ripe for like, come on, three part harmony, three part harmony. What's this? There's not even, this is like, nah, get this out of the way. Of course, if I can go back now and, and appreciate it better. Yes, but, of course. Uh, but we were all geez. like that. I mean, we we all, we all, you know, were bored with opening acts that went on. And later on, we felt that way. I mean, my very first concert I ever saw as a, as a kid was the Guess Who in a, in a reunion tour. And there was an unknown guy from, in, from my area that opened for them named Bob Seeker. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and I did not go see the next uh, concert for some reason, practice. my parents wouldn't let me. This is in my hometown, by the way, in our little ice rink. And the opening act was David Lindley and Jackson Brown. But I didn't even know that at the time until I found out. <laughs> but, 
You fool. You fool. I, well, it was my fault. I wasn't allowed to go. I don't remember who the headliner was now. But it was some, it was like a chick, a chick, you know, a young girl's heartthrob kind of artist. So I was not really interested in going anyway, but I had no idea who the opening act was, would have been. And uh, I had to go back to start my final tour. And in fact, I, I mean, my final term at school. In fact, I had to go back and like cast the, what had become my thesis project show. And my sister was going to buy me as an early birthday present, seeing Michael Hedges and Leo Kotke at town hall. And I'd already, but I already had my plane tickets. So I couldn't do that. But there's a couple videos of it out there, uh, out there, and particularly the encore where they play together. And Michael is playing a vintage 518 Martin Tourist guitar as they uh, jam together on some, you know, kind of really spacey. Uh, uh, fingerstyle piece. And we talked about Howie's blues stuff and talking about Elle's Celtic influence. Michael Hedges is very trance-like and very repetitive patterns building and that kind of stuff. So I find some of his stuff just like perfect for, if you have to take, you know, an Epsom salt bath after a tough football game, as I used to do in the old days, and sit there and just soak and listen to, uh, you would make mixtapes of just his like sort of relaxation, meditation kind of stuff. So uh, those, those guys were real big. Around the same time, I rediscovered Leokaki because he had gotten into being overproduced, kind of the way that Jim Croce and Towns Van Zandt got overproduced with, with too much percussion and stuff, and it, I found it kind of boring. And so, but then he had a tune in one of the guitar magazines from his new album called My Father's Face. So I got the album so I could learn to play the song and really love the album. And it does have other instrumentation on it, but very tastefully done, as well as having some solo pieces. But of course, as I've found many times throughout my life, if I hear an album from an artist I'm not familiar with, or I normally wouldn't like that much, and I really, really like the album, like almost every time it was produced by T-Bone Burnett. And uh, so I highly recommend Leo Kotke's album, My Father's Face, it came out maybe 1990. Uh, he had just switched to start playing Taylor's. Bob Taylor had built him a 12 string that really brought him back to the 12 string. And, uh, but it has a bunch of other, like, you know, fretless bass on it and stuff here and there, but just very interesting, very tasteful, you know, uh, typical of T-Bone Burnett. The, uh, the, you know, an accordion will come in out of the blue just at exactly the right place. You know, those, that, those kind of techniques and very subtle and, and very cool and well done. So uh, a big shout out to that. It really brought me back to Leo Kotke, uh, who I've really kind of stayed with ever after. So how, what's another uh, artist that you like or an album that you would recommend uh, for his fingerstyle fan? If you think you're the only person who's going to talk about Acoustic Guitar Magazine people on this podcast, you are mistaken. <laughs> I will see your Taya Gherkin and raise you Doug Young. Ooh, ah, very good. Very good call. We, um, if you're listening to this podcast on YouTube, I dare you to pause this program, do a search for acoustic pickups, and see if you can find anything that's not attached to Doug Young. Doug Young, <laughs> at least in my, my short lifetime, is the person who knows and cares and shares about acoustic guitar pickups. He's famous for having his website full of pickup guitar samples, and chances are, if any company ever makes a guitar pickup and makes it public, Doug Young tried it recorded it, did a, bl a blog about it, 
uh, played it at a gig. It's it's Doug Young seems to just be living for uh, acoustic guitar pickups. What makes them good? What makes them bad? Uh, it's it, kidding aside. If you try to figure out and research something about a modern acoustic guitar pickup or microphone post 1995, you're going to find something about Doug Young somewhere because he's tried it and he's probably the one that knows more about it than you. But back in 2020, I got a really good CD. It's called Duets and it's Doug Young and Taya Gurkin. And Taya Gurkin. I was just going to bring it up. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Boy, is that good. And I, I remember listening to that mostly, you know, how a lot of Music can be the soundtrack from some event in your life. We took a trip to Cape Cod or Salem up in Massachusetts, and that, I don't know if she admitted it or not, but Lori got so sick of me spinning that because it's eight hours home if you don't hit traffic. <laughs> and I just, you know, it's one of those things, and, and this isn't, a, it doesn't poke fun at fingerstyle, but when you're listening to something like that, if you go past the last track and it repeats, you don't always immediately notice, and you don't want to <laughs> change it. It's just such a great, great vibe. Um, I would use the word relaxed uh, when I describe how that album comes across. And, and when I say that, what I really mean is it doesn't feel like anybody's fighting anything. There's there's two guitar players, obviously, and they're, they're complimentary. It's not somebody's playing rhythm and being bored and somebody's showing off and playing too much lead. It really sounds like almost as if you could get two people to play one instrument and if there was enough room on the fretboard for both fingerstyle hands to be doing both parts it, it, it seems very 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 unified and they're uh, i don't know if they've done a lot more since then i know they have really big catalogs and resumes uh, alone but that album they did together uh, i do speak from a point of view where i don't know a lot about them on their own yeah quite agree and it's for sale you can get it you just go to tayagurka.com you can get it i'm sure you can find it on uh, doug's stuff as well very good oh, very yeah. cool yeah, very good call. Very good call. I'm glad you brought that up. Very, you know, a lot of there's an awful lot of uh, Chet heads out there, as they call themselves. There's a huge, uh, huge following of Chet Atkins, and who made it all look very easy, and you know, and could get very country or not that country, uh, but of course uh, his his influences go back to. Uh, they call it Travis picking for a reason. And Merle Travis, for people who are not that familiar with Merle Travis's work, he often, you know, he's one of those guys that wore those extremely spangly outfits and looked really country and had sideburns and all that. But what a guitar player! Uh, often played a big hollow body electric with a whammy bar. And but to hear him play acoustic guitar was always a great treat. A uh, true Travis picking. He literally only played with his first finger. He almost never used another finger other than his, he used his thumb and his first finger, where everybody else tends to use at least two fingers, if not three, and sometimes four. But I'll just throw out a quick album for people to check out if you're not familiar, uh, is Live in Boston, which was something that was released in modern times. And it's just him solo with his D28 and uh, with the Bigsby neck on it because he would like a much skinnier neck and uh from it's probably from 19 i don't know 59 so he was already you know mature by that time he really you know he was his real heyday was in the 40s probably but late 40s but um mm. highly recommend that that's just something i will throw out there okay so your turn what's uh, the next uh fingerstyle album comes to mind you would like to recommend well, it's a pair of people, and I have a two-part answer. I would list Eric Skye and Mark Goldenberg, and at the same time, my mind goes right to Mark's solo effort called Mark Goldenberg, and I really should start there because that album, there's something really unique about it. I'm not entirely sure 
how much was recorded with acoustic guitars, how much was archtop guitar. And when I say this next statement, I might risk it coming out the wrong way, but that album is as much about the production and the end result of the tones and like the soundscapes he gets. It's one of those albums I wouldn't be surprised if it sounds really, really different if you're lucky enough to see him at a house concert and play it on one guitar without the reverb and the effects. He uses the, uh, the atmosphere of that recording as much as he uses the actual songs and guitar parts. And it's one of those things I can't separate. I mean, I've never heard that music without hearing that album, but it's an album I cannot separate the guitar playing from the really, really creative, moody use of reverb and a little bit of delay. And it just, it's one of those albums that it's, it's full of so much content I can't understand. Him and his solo album, plus the stuff he does with Eric, it's so jazzy and it's really uh, a chord vocabulary that goes way above my head. Um, but I, I would definitely list Mark Goldenberg's uh, 2004 CD called Mark Goldenberg that you can find at his website. And on the same subject, he did a really great duet album with Eric Skye. That album's called Artifact. I was lucky enough to, to win a signed copy of that uh, from some promotion Eric was doing on either Facebook or the Acoustic Guitar Forum. But it's a collection of really, really, really highbrow. They start playing, and after the three or four second mark, I don't know what, what they're doing. It's not necessarily playing weird chords for the sake of being weird, but it's, it's an album I can really sink my teeth into and never ever expect to be able to play. I, I know a lot of the music I, I grew up listening to, I love it so much, the first thing I want to do is learn it. That's not happening here. I, I won't ever expect to get uh, my chops up to the point where I can hear something from Eric Skye or Mark Goldenberg, uh, let alone together, and try to copy it. But their music together, it's really, really interesting. And I run the risk of sounding cliche a couple of times on this show with this specific episode, but this album, Artifact, there's so many dynamics to it it seems like they take the approach where of course you're playing acoustic music and you want to be quiet you want to be loud you want to create some drama they get so quiet so often it's it's such a tease it almost makes you maybe not almost it makes you listen more closely and their use of of phrasing and and leaving a lot of space and a lot of volume disparity it's, it's almost funny uh, some you know amateur recorder might think that they're not playing loud enough in some places, but it really, really draws you in. So my my two-part answer there is Eric Sky and Mark Goldenberg together on Artifact, and equally as important, Mark's solo album is just so cool. And if I haven't given to either one of those yet, I, I really have to turn you on to that stuff. Actually, I have not heard their collaboration, um, and I know Goldenberg from seeing him play with Jackson Brown. So mm -hmm. that's really quite fascinating. And I think of him more as a, you know, I mean, an all-purpose guitar, but I think of him mainly as a lead guitar. He's the guy that, that took over basically for uh, Danny Cooch and David Lindley, really, in, you know, uh, in later eras of Jackson Brown's uh, touring life and, uh, oh, yeah. and uh, recording life. So that's very cool. Let's pause for a moment and listen to a sound sample. This is Eric Skye and Mark Goldenberg.
That reminds me of an album I had not even thought of, but you, the way you mentioned their collaboration. In the late 90s, Steve Howe and Martin Taylor put an uh, album together, uh, I think called Guitar Masterpieces or Masterpiece Guitars. And what it was was Scott Chinnery, the, uh, the uh, very wealthy uh, New Jersey native that had an enormous um, and very famous guitar and stringed instrument collection. And also underwrote the uh, the Long Island uh, uh, guitar show or whatever it was called at that time, and he unfortunately uh, died quite suddenly, I think, of a heart attack and and ridiculously young. But they had and he had wanted to do a whole series of albums. The only one there that was ever made was Steve Howe and Martin Taylor, and I do know there's one cut on it where one of them is playing a guitar that was made by C.F. Martin Sr and one of them was playing a guitar made by Orville Gibson. So that was very, very cool. But the whole thing, and there's elect I think there's electric and acoustic guitars on the album, if I remember correctly, but, but really, uh, really cool album. So thank you for those, those are quite, that's quite interesting. So I'm gonna bring up a, a tandem of guitarists that are related in a certain way as well. And they are Stefan Grossman and Woody Mann, ah. and uh, who unfortunately uh, passed away recently. And these are two guys that have been uh, usually influential as much as disciples as, uh, as themselves, as both of them were protégés of the legendary Reverend Gary Davis in New York City. And you could say that uh, Stephen Grossman is, is perhaps the prime protégé of the Reverend and carrier of that torch. Woody had expanded his music out into more freeform uh, jazz stuff, all kinds of interesting stuff. But as a very young man, he was literally Reverend Gary Davis's guitar carrier. That's how he, that was his kind of first uh, connection to the Reverend. <laughs> but anyway, both of them uh, have Martin signature models. Uh, the uh, Grossman was a, a J40 of some sort, a jumbo. And, uh, and Woody had a very cool signature model that was a mahogany M with a cutaway and a large sound hole and quarter inch bracing, which I always felt belonged on the, on the M's. And it was really quite a, is a really a very cool and one of the most, I think, tone wise, one of the most successful Martin signature models ever made. But anyway, um, those for them, I would say, if I was just saying for people who are never familiar with them, I'm gonna say heading uptown, uh, is a Woody Man album, and that's from around the turn of the century. So he even did a tribute album for Gary Davis, Reverend Gary Davis. But but I would say then Stairwell Serenade that was made maybe 10 years later. Those are the two I'd recommend. Uh, Woody Man, uh, unique style. He was always so nice. He uh, had guitar camps in Scotland. I think his wife was uh, from the UK. And uh, he'll, he'll be missed. And as for Stefan Grossman, he's still out there. He's still... He's still doing his stuff. Uh, he's got millions of very worthy uh, guitar learning videos. He got into that very early on, definitely worth checking out. Um, but in terms of his, I guess, guitar landscape from this century, then he's got uh, all kinds of uh, you know blues albums. And there was one called, oh boy, this is going back. It's called Love, Devils, and the Blues. That's definitely worth checking out. So. He's got many records, um, but if you're not familiar with Stefan Grossman, if you only know him by name, you should uh, definitely check him out. And, and the late uh, and lovely Woody Man.
I sat next to Stefan Grossman at one of the Martin Dealer dinners years and years ago at the NAMM show, and I meant to ask him to tell me how to play everything, but he probably would have said, get the book. <laughs> so I just said hi. Perhaps, perhaps so. That's very cool, very cool. So it's safe to say in this really brief podcast, we probably have talked about all the pertinent fingerstyle players. I'm sure we haven't left anyone off. Would you completely agree <laughs> that we have not left one stone unturned? I can't think of anybody we didn't talk about already. Could you? Oh, please. Yes, I could, but I'm only going to pick one. I'm, there's, there are so many uh, really cool independent artists out there, fingerstylists, and I'm sure the listeners who are on YouTube will be happy to uh, refer us and other uh, people to their favorites that we have not mentioned. I can't go any farther without mentioning the guitarist that Dick Boak has more than once referred to as the greatest living guitarist. And that's saying a lot because he's known a lot of them. And that's Lawrence Jr. Maury Rutsch. Yeah! <laughs> This is really awkward now. Uh, yeah, it is because that's not what I was going to say. I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Lawrence Juber. Ooh. Ooh, ah. A lot of people already know this, but Lawrence Juber, right out of music college, became a very successful session musician in London, which quickly led him to being asked by Paul McCartney to join Wings. And he uh, got his first Grammy for his work on the theme to Rockestra, which uh, won the Grammy for Best Rock Instrumental. That may have been the first year it was ever offered, actually, as an award. And after Wings broke up, he wasn't wearing Wings very long because the band went to Japan. Paul was arrested for possession and decided he wasn't going to tour anymore. And then Wings basically disintegrated after that. And uh, Lawrence moved to New York, became session man again, met his wife, moved to California, and became a, a lifelong session man in Hollywood uh, on zillions of TV shows and movie soundtracks and whatever. But his first love was always acoustic fingerstyle. And he has got very many records out there. So it'd be difficult to pick. And I have to say, I was not familiar with his solo uh, instrumental music at all. I heard maybe two cuts on those uh, on those compilation CDs that some of those labels would put out. And until I bought his signature model, which I bought purely on the merits of its spectacular design as a guitar, which is uh, was a Brazilian rosewood, uh, basically a Brazilian rosewood OM28V with Adirondack spruce and cutaway. And um, still, I think one of the great uh, guitars, I've owned two of them regretted selling them. Uh, I sold them because of the V-necks that bother my hand now. But anyway, then I met him at NAMM and he was already familiar with me from my internet presence. Um, and then he became um, one of the music guests at uh, Martinfest and, and he and his wife and I have been friends ever since. And, and I try to see him whenever he's on the East Coast. If you haven't seen him, you're really missing something special. Um, I would have to say his LJ plays the Beatles is a magnificent tour de force. I love his his originals uh, a lot, but he's really good at 
uh, you mentioned this about Al McMean. He's really good at taking arrangements of famous songs. He's done multiple Beatle albums. He's done Wings albums. He's done other pop music albums. He did a wonderful album called I've Got the World on Six Strings. That's all uh, music written by Harold Arlen, who wrote If I Only Had a Brain, the music to If I Only Had a Brain, who wrote the music to Stormy Weather and, and many other huge American songbook hits as a composer. And, um, and so those are the two I'm going to bring up right now. Uh, I could go on and on about them. I'll say PCH, PCH, which stands for Pacific Coast Highway and the title track from that album. And I think that's also the album that has his absolute barn burner rendition of All of Me. And I highly recommend you find the mm -hmm. video of him playing it if you've never seen it. Just uh, spectacular work. And just a, a master craftsman, but uh, many of his own compositions are about his now, what must be heading on 40 year love affair with his wife. And yeah, I can't, uh, can't recommend him enough. And I'll just throw this out here. I was just treated the other day on his Facebook page. He shared a video from the 90s of him and Al Stewart doing a rendition of Time Passages huh. at uh, some, like, like a bookstore or something in Southern California. And, but it's, uh, Al Stewart reveals that it's actually, it was originally the progression of it is actually an Irish jig. So they start playing this finger, this like Irish jig. I think they're actually using flat picks, but, uh, and then it's, goes into time passages, but then huh. it becomes this extended Lawrence Juber rock jam that's just, uh, just check it out on YouTube. So anyway, I've, you can't, you know, you can't have these discussions without Lawrence Juber. I have uh, been happy to see him many times and I love to watch him perform, you know, on, uh, there's a great video of him and Tommy Emmanuel, who, uh, where Emmanuel just stopped by Lawrence's house in home studio and they're just like, like throw around, you know, Django Reinhardt stuff and, and whatever. But anyway, so that's, you know, that's, he's, he's always on my playlists. He's, he have my, I have, you know, relaxation playlists. I have clean the house playlists. I have going out and doing a fitness march in nature playlists and, and his music just keeps popping up all over him. It's funny. You talk about being friends with him and hope. And I got to meet him, you know, a couple of times at those Martin Fest. And the very first introduction I had with him, I was still running sound at the open mic in the afternoon at the park for Martin Fest. And he was getting ready to do his clinic or his performance. And I thought, uh, I'll, I'll play the I know what I'm doing with the sound equipment card. And I'll, I'll get like on that level with him. And he'll think I'm a little bit cooler than the person who just walks past and waves. And I said, you got to check this preamp out. And I was putting together some of the gear for uh, the whole afternoon, frankly, not just his set. And I'm plugging them into a Seymour Duncan, a DTAR. They call it the Solstice. It's a two-channel preamp. And I'm trying to kind of school him on how cool this thing is. And he's just such a gentleman to just look at me and smile. And he said, I, I helped design that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it teaches you a lesson like just be normal. Don't try to impress everybody. And yeah, But um, it also proves that you have very good taste in, in preamps and know your stuff. So. Well, what a what a tremendous player, and and I know so many musicians, and you probably do too, that have the ego that Lawrence could have, and they don't have his chops. And for how impressive he is, and and to get on any stage in Nazareth with Dick Boak, famously saying, like you were mentioning a few minutes ago, this could, this guy's the best guitar player. He certainly does not let you think that he thinks and believes that, and he's just a great great player. 
Well, he certainly, he knows his chops. And by the way, I have to correct myself. PCH is not the album with All of Me. I can't remember which one that is. The reason I was going to mention PCH is he actually has other musicians on it. I'm pretty sure it's Russ Kunkel and Lee Sklar, in fact, uh, as well as some other people. But he does, um, he does an album with this rhythm section, keyboards, bass, and drums. And then at the end, three of the songs are uh, just him doing them solo. So you still get some of his solo finger style guitar. And the, very, and the end before that, a, a tune called Blue Guitar Blues, um, it may mention it on the record, but I know he's talked about it. It was literally like there's four minutes left on, on the clock for the union musicians. So they just do this blues jam with him. I guess he was playing like a blue ES-335 or whatever. So it's called Blue Guitars Blues, I think is the name of the song, but not song. These are all instrumentals, but they're very cool and uh, definitely worth checking out. Oh, wow. Well, that's a big fireworks ending, and I, I can't fault you for it, but do we have time to maybe do honorable mentions or addendums, or how would you say that? Sure, sure, by all means. Who would you like to uh, throw out there? Well, don't make a face, and I'm not trying to be cute. You. I really, really mean this. I'm so impressed and attached to your playing style, your recordings. Uh, your Lost and Haunted Ways has made a significant impact on, on my acoustic, on my ears, on my acoustic life and my ears. You are hardly talked about... I don't know if it was from the early 90s or before that, but I've latched onto it when I met you at NASFest. Fresh Cuts, I don't know if that was a released project or if it was just a bootleg, <laughs> but, but your, your playing, your, your songwriting, and, and some of that is where we use the term asterisk here because we're talking about our favorite fingerstyle albums and Fresh Cuts has lots of singing on it. But I will say, ah. in the scope of this program, I would certainly list Spoon Phillips' Lost in Haunted Ways. I know I yap about it all the time on our YouTube programs, but it's because it really means a lot to me, and I really, really expect that if I turn a friend onto that CD, they're going to really like it. It's not commercial. It's not me pushing the agenda. I really like Lost in Haunted Ways, and I think if I, if I don't mention that on this broadcast for this episode, I'll regret saying it. So I, I don't mean to make, make you feel uncomfortable, but I really do count that as one of my faves. Well, that's very generous of you to say. Thank you very much. Uh, just to correct you, it's actually select cuts. And I only bring that up because that was, like you said, it was just a one-off that I basically had made for friends and to bring to Martin Fest. But I am going to recycle that title and probably the uh, album cover itself, which was a, uh, uh, I don't remember <laughs> the artist now, but it's like a medieval painting of two butchers with parts of uh, cut up. <laughs> boars and cows or whatever. But anyway, I don't know if I'll use that uh, for the select cuts or not album cover. But I'm going to be taking those uh, recordings of the finger style solo stuff, not the songs, and I'm going to have them modern digitized and modernized because I probably don't remember how to play that stuff anymore, and then add new cuts to it. So that's probably going to be my next finger style album whenever I get around to uh, and get the funds together and all that. So, but thank you very much. Well, would you do me a favor? Uh, call that one Fresh Cut so I don't have to edit my episode here. <laughs> I'll think about it. <laughs> well, Spoon, speaking of instrumental music, you know what the music means. We're out of time. I want to thank all the great songwriters and musicians who gave birth to that great fingerstyle music that caused us to talk about them all through this episode. We wouldn't be the same musicians we are today without having those soundtracks. And I want to thank you, Spoon, for another great, great hour-long conversation. From all of us at Maury's Music, thanks for listening.
Hear you later. This has been a presentation of Maury's Music, your trusted source for Martin and Blue Ridge guitars. Find us online at maurysmusic.com. <laughs>